Welcome to this, the second episode of the Renewed Duck of Minerva podcast. I'll be talking with Dan Nexon, Associate Professor at Georgetown University and former lead editor of International Studies Quarterly. Today we'll be talking about his experience as an editor, as well as his prognosis for publishing in international relations today. In a future podcast, we'll be talking with him about his new book coming out in March of next year, Exit from Hegemony, co-authored with Alex Cooley. Well, thanks, Dan, for coming on the renewed Duck of Minerva podcast. This is a obviously a huge honor for me. I'm filling your very, very large shoes from when you did this a number of years ago, so I'm trying to live up to standard. I think a lot of folks want to hear about your new book, Exit from Hegemony, coming out that you've done, that you're doing with Alex Cooley. But I, we're going to hold off on that, if that's okay with you. We want, I think it would be good to revisit that in a podcast li- closer to the publication date in March. Does that sound fine? That sounds great. Okay, great. So sort of bracketing that right now, let's turn to um, your the experience you had at ISQ. So I was an avid reader of the Duck of Minerva before I became a contributor, and you, and I remember you having a lot of thoughts about the nature of journal publishing, and then you you ascended the throne, if you will, at ISQ. You didn't go radio silent, but a lot of those thoughts disappeared. I think there was pressure from ISA not to say too much about the process, um, but also, you know, editorial integrity. And now you're on the other side. And so I wanted to find out from you how your experience editing ISQ has either reinforced those uh, perspectives that you had before you took over or changed those perspectives. So let me uh, actually make, uh, if you don't mind, a correction, which is, sure. uh, so I, as part of taking over ISQ, there was a general consensus among uh, the uh, edit, my editorial team, among the powers that be at ISA and among myself, which was that it was probably a good idea to pull out of the Duck of Minerva while I did that. So while I generally did go radio silent at the Duck of Minerva, I did try to use alternative platforms to communicate about what was happening on the editorial side. So I did spend a lot of time talking about, you know, if you followed me on Twitter, you followed the ISQ Twitter handle, you would have seen me talk about aspects of peer reviewing. I did use the blog that we set up at, uh, at ISA to talk about, you know, various kinds of processes and do questions and answers and things like that. And I also, uh, used Facebook and I even engaged for a long time at political science rumors. Probably that was probably a mistake, but nonetheless, to try to kind of use as many channels as I could to get out good information about what we were doing, the kinds of questions we were wrestling with and what was actually happening, uh, behind the curtain. And that was important to me. I think obviously in retrospect, the Deck of Minerva would have been the best platform for that because of its relative permanency. Uh, but, and because it's of its opened, because it's, you know, open to everybody in a way that Facebook and even in some respects, Twitter isn't, uh, mm-hmm. nonetheless. So I, I kind of used alternative platforms. So, okay. I stand corrected there. Yeah. This was important to me. I think that one of the, one of the things that is a problem with journal editing uh, in the journal, so the the journal the the process of journal publications is probably uh, the most important thing in our field for uh, sort of the accumulation of academic capital. So 
whether you get a job, whether you get promoted, whether you get tenure, what your general status in the field is, is by and large, all things being equal, most heavily influenced by journal publications. Uh, that's not to discount books, uh, or it's not to discount people who are really skilled at networking uh, and other aspects of being able to uh, advance their career uh, in, in international relations. But I think everybody kind of agrees that, that journal publications are probably the most important, um, uh, in part because some people don't publish books anymore. Uh, and in part because they're the they're the they're the thing that everybody is sort of expected to do. Certainly until you get tenure or you get full. Um, so they're the single most important thing that we do when it comes to getting ahead in the field or not getting ahead in the field. And yet there's a lot of mystification. Uh, a lot of a lot of a lot of people don't really understand what happens in the editorial process. A lot of people have theories about the editorial process that come out of very limited engagement. You know, you, you submit an art, you maybe over the lifetime of a single editorial team, maybe somebody who's really prolific might submit five pieces to that team. Uh, and they're going to base their entire impressions about what's happening at the journal based on the, the experience they have with those very limited number of, of intersections with the journal. Sure. Uh, there are journals that are run differently uh, and people often extrapolate from one journal kind of process to a different journal process. There are a lot of theories about uh, corruption uh, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. and self-dealing. Uh, and I don't think those theories are entirely, are universally wrong, but I think that they tend to really overstate the case that at the most prestigious uh, general IR journals, there's even room to engage in that kind of behavior. Um, and so there's just a lot of, there's a lot of, and there's a lot of sort of assumptions about it. And I see this when I talk to graduate students, junior faculty, or senior faculty, uh, that a lot of what people think happens or what they think happens in the time when they submit an article to the time that they get a decision on it, isn't necessarily what actually happens on the other side. Uh, and so, and, but I think that because of that, that means that the field is full of asymmetric information. Some mm -hmm. people know this better than other people do. And knowing it better does give you some advantages in the process. And so I think if we want to kind of democratize the process as much as we can, it's important that as many people as possible know as much as possible about what is involved in publishing in an academic IR journal. And at also at, at what, what is different across different kinds of academic IR journals. Sure. I, I, the, the process of publishing, I think, is, I mean, you're absolutely correct. You, you have a very limited number of interactions. And uh, outcomes, it seems to me, are, it's difficult to triangulate, right? So you'll get uh, one article that you think is, you know, iffy, go through, you have one go through, and you have another one that you thought was ironclad. Uh, be either desk rejected or or um, get hung up on the infamous second reviewer and be rejected even though they have you have two other positive reviews or whatever. So there doesn't um, it's difficult I think for people on the submitting side to sort of get a sense as to what's really required or maybe a better way to put it is it feels like the ground is always shifting. At least that's my experience. You know I've had that that exact some articles that I thought were just. Um, some of my best work and just couldn't land them. And I know that uh, I just reviewed uh, a forum for a, a major journal and one of the forum contributors was talking about, and this is a quite well-known IR scholar, 
talking about how they had submitted this work to multiple, multiple, multiple journals and, and had not been successful. And then all of a sudden it got into one place and, and people are paying a lot of attention to it. So it, it, I think this idiosyncratic or, or um, uh, this, this shifting ground sense makes it, lends itself to these perceptions about corruption or unfairness or what have you. And there, the ground is always shifting, and it's always shifting at a micro level because there's a lot of stochasticity introduced in the process based on just who is reviewing your paper. Uh, and one of the things that people always say as a, a bunch of conventional wisdom is that the a lot of the control that editors have in the process and the way that they can put their thumbs on the scale is in terms of choosing reviewers. Mm-hmm. It's true that you know going in that some reviewers are more sympathetic to certain kinds of work than other kinds of work. Uh, If you don't know that about the reviewers before you start editing a journal, you figure that out pretty quickly just by accumulating knowledge and accumulating examples or cases of review. You know that some people are frankly bigger jerks than other people, have have lower tolerances uh, for um, being supportive of pieces. And so there are ways in which it is true you can put your thumb on the scale by choosing reviewers. There are also ways in which in certain subfields or sub-subfields in various niches of, of, of particular subject areas or methods, the distribution of reviewers is different. So there are uh, sub-niches where the reviewer, the reviewing culture is more supportive, and there are sure. sub-niches where the reviewing culture is more negative and more critical. Uh, and that can affect the likelihood of a piece being published. But it's also the case that even if I come in as an editor with pr- pretty pretty good information about which reviewers are how reviewers might likely react to a piece, or what the threshold is for them for liking a piece or, or recommending an R and R and acceptance, I still can't control whether or not those people review, uh, because reviewer demands are so heavy that the chances are very high that the first three or four people you go to to review aren't going to be the ones who agree to review, or at least only a subset of them will. So the outcome of reviewer invitations, even if you had kind of perfect information and perfect control over the selection of reviewers, that breaks down very quickly for editors um, because of the low positive response rate for requests to review. The grounds, so at the micro level, the ground is always shifting just because of the stochasticity that's built in the process, who reviews, uh, who, in terms of who reviews your piece. Uh, and then at the macro level, norms of publishing are changing fairly rapidly. Uh, norms of what constitutes a good paper in a subject area can change fairly quickly. Um, standards often go up over time in terms of uh, what is considered a sufficient marginal contribution, what is considered state of the art, whether it's on the method side or the theory side can can change over time. Uh, And then also the fundamental reality, which is that in aggregate, the number of submissions to journals is just going up without an end in sight. Uh, And as those numbers continue to go up, uh, that not only, I think, increases the underlying stochasticity uh, built into the reviewer process, and there are a bunch of reasons beyond just securing reviewers, why that's the case that I think we'll come back to later. But it also means that um, more pieces are competing for fewer slots, uh, and that has effects on what can be published. Uh, A good example I I like to use of this, and I think it's, uh, I'm now blanking on the name of the person who've written this. I name-checked this in one of the pieces I published at the Deaf Minerva, but the sort of rise in what, what, what 
some people call the aesthetics of peer review. Mm -hmm. So you, if you have more pieces that hit a quality bar where you can publish them, how do you, I use the quality bar very loosely that get reviews that are sufficiently positive that you could in theory take them through an R and R process and get them published. But you have more pieces that are meeting that standard then you can possibly, you know, accept on the back end without building up an enormous backlog. Then what is this criteria used to distinguish between two pieces that, in a lot of, in terms of the the quality of the reviews, are generally pretty comparable? You start making judgments that get very, very subjective about, you know, how, you know, how big an impact you think this might have. Uh, how innovative do you think this is? Um, uh, how much might this draw in a more general audience versus more a niche audience? And to the extent that those kinds of criteria start to also get into play in the review process, uh, the more arbitrary and capricious you make it. And also the, the, the nature of what those are shift over time. And so it becomes hard to predict a piece that might have fit the, the perfect aesthetics for a peer-reviewed piece at the APSR in 2005 is not going to, to hit, those, hit the, those marks in 2009. Does that make sense? So, yeah, that makes perfect sense. So as an editor, how do you deal, do you, well, I guess there's two questions here. One is, do you, is there a need to deal or uh, uh, address the stochasticity either on the micro level or on the macro level of shifting uh, standards or aesthetics? Is there a need to try to establish some sort of consistency? If yes, how do you, how do you do that as an editor? Well, I imagine the experience is different based on the kind of journal that you edit. So International Studies Quarterly likes to think of itself as the most diverse and heterogeneous of all the major IR journals. That is to say that anything that could be published in any other general interest IR journal uh, or in a number of sub-subfield journals or subfield journals if you think IR is a field, uh, should be publishable in ISQ. And that heterogeneity presents a challenge that is even greater, I think, than some other general IR journals like IO, where there's more of a kind of house style than there is in mm-hmm. ISQ. Um, so ISQ is probably a different animal in that regards than, say, an international political sociology or a security studies or a millennium, because it doesn't have a very strong identity that allows you to make some of those, you know, that sort of does a bunch of work coming in, both in terms of what the editor's expectations are about what they're going to be publishing and author's expectations about what kinds of pieces they're going to submit. So anything I say about ISQ is kind of at the at the extreme end of it's hard, uh, <laughs> as opposed to uh, some of the some of the other journals that I've named. Um, so then there's the sort of ideal versus the practice, right? So in an ideal world, uh, you would set certain kinds of standards uh, and be able to clearly articulate a vision for what the aesthetic marks that a piece has to meet would be, uh, and that would so people would have fair warning and they would be able to write to that, right? So they'd be able to think about how can I frame my piece in a way that makes it more likely to be uh, to be of interest uh, as the editors and the reviewers understand it to a quote unquote broad audience. And you can try to give guidance on that in that to that you, know, you can try to give guidance on that. And you try to you can try to hope that people read that guidance and that gives everybody uh, a sort of some amount of equal. Uh, some amount of, of equal shot 
but the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, you can't give perfect guidance. Not everybody reads those that guidance. A lot of people have um, ideas about what the journal is or should be about that aren't going to align with that guidance and which are going to are going to squeeze out that guidance. So in a sense, you can try, but you can't necessarily succeed. Um, more broadly, uh, you can try to set consistent standards across certain types of article type, you know, sort of within certain kinds of niches. So you can try to set consistent standards for what does a good, you know, at ISQ, we had research notes, theory notes, standard research articles. Uh, some, you know, we, we did look at fora and we did actually um, publish one, accept one forum while I was, we, we actually accepted two forums when I was there, although one was a legacy that we inherited uh, from the prior team. Uh, and you can try to set then sort of standard, set some degree that you can signal standards within you know, what, what would a good post-structuralist piece look like? What would a good um, critical theoretic piece look like? What would a good kind of normal science qualitative piece look like? What would a good stats piece look like? But you're both constrained by the fact that you can't have 4,000 pages of guidance uh, and by the fact that even with a big diverse team of editors, you don't necessarily know, and you certainly don't necessarily know better than some of the reviewers do. So you have to keep, so just in general, you can't, be too granular on that. And that then creates, again, additional uncertainty. So you deal with those trade-offs. The other problem is, is that, that any sufficiently large journal now in terms of volume is going to have a big team, particularly if it's a diverse uh, journal, because you know I certainly can't give A-plus guidance on a formal modeling piece. Uh, and there are plenty of people who can't give A-plus guidance on a kind of, um, you know, theory of international order piece um, as editors. And so you need to then have a diversity of editors who can handle all of those different submissions, which creates a coordination problem across uh, those editors. And so part of what the editor-in-chief job becomes often is just trying to fight, you know, sort of struggle against the tide to make sure there's some consistency in standards and in the kinds of decision letters you're sending out and in the way that you're handling reviewer issues across those those pieces. And so it's it's you can do a lot procedurally and you can do a lot in terms of signaling, but you can it, you can never really make it work uh, the way that you ought to. I'm quite curious to go down a little bit this path about the agency of the editor. So I have a couple questions and I don't, maybe I'll just throw them both at you and you see which ones you want to answer. So one is you've mentioned the sort of the projecting out or communicating the standards of the journal. And some of that is obviously institutional journals have edit, uh, have boards there are accountable to ISQ is accountable to ISA but ostensibly, you as the editor-in-chief, I mean, this, this ties in a little bit with that ring leader or ring master comment you just made. Or Ostensibly, you as editor-in-chief have some agency to ch chart a vision for the journal. Maybe I'm wrong about that. And so what what agency do do you did you have as an editor? What agency do you see other editors having? It obviously varies across the institutional context of the journals. Obviously, it makes a huge difference whether you're an association journal, because association journals are responsible to the 
association leadership and ultimately the entire membership. And then it matters what that association is uh, and how hands-on or not the, um, the association leadership is in terms of making sure that the journal conforms to some expectations and there's wide variation there. I mean, it's actually, I think, a little bit, of, it's, I, I, I liked the fact that ISQ was an association journal because I liked the fact that we're responsible to a broad membership, even though that creates a lot of headaches and even though at the end of the day, there are certain constituencies that as much as you'd like to, you will fail at serving, but at least that creates pressure on the journal not to be discriminatory uh, with, within at least some bounds, right? And that is not to say we are going to only co publish quantitative work or we're only going to publish, um, you know, our standards mean that X, Y, and Z is not social science. You're going to do that anyway, but it, it creates it creates pressure on you to broaden that um, out to some degree that you might not otherwise be under. The disadvantage, obviously, is that you can't necessarily institute as powerful a vision as you would like, and you can't exercise as much editorial control as it might be optimal from the perspective of the journal to exercise um, precisely because then you get in trouble. I mean, it, it's it, in some ways, it must be really nice to edit a journal where the only responsibility is to yourself, right, into your own vision and to be there for 10 or 15 years uh, so that you don't have the problem of constant turnover. I mean, one of the problems with signaling that I think is relevant here is that if a journal is turning over editorship every four or five years, essentially you can say all you want, we are going to be a very, very broad journal or we're going to be a very, very narrow journal. But that message won't really sink in until a lot of the material that you've accepted has been published, which won't happen usually at a journal until two or three years in. So the, by, by the time you start shifting the perception of what that journal will publish, um, you're no longer to be editing the journal, right? Um, and so you might get somebody who comes in who has a very different understanding of what they think they're doing. And it can, it just sort of creates a, if you want to talk about constantly shifting ground, one of the mantras uh, that all journal holders say is that journal reputations are sticky and your pipeline doesn't alter. If, if people begin to believe that, that a journal will only publish certain kinds of work, it's very hard to shift that pipeline. That is to shift what people are submitting to the journal. Uh, and by the time you actually do that, right, you, you're, you're pretty much ready to step down. <laughs> Another question I have, and I, and I think this also quite varies quite substantially across editorial teams or editors, is the obligation for feedback. And I, some of this ties in with the uh, arguments you've made about transparency, the work that you did while you were editor at ISQ to publicize processes and procedures. I didn't submit anything to ISQ while you were editor, I don't think, but I did review for ISQ, and I was, I was personally very impressed at how much effort uh, the decision, how much effort went into the feedback to authors, regardless of whether it was a, an accept, an R&R, or a reject. It was clearly very thoughtful, and I imagine very time-consuming. Uh, but I, you've already, you've already mentioned, and I think we're going to get to this in a bit. Some of the bigger challenges in the peer review process, but it strikes me that it was, I I imagined it was unsustainable. And so, I, how do you walk that line between what you clearly thought to be an obligation on your part as editor to 
clearly explain the basis of decision and the requirements of doing that for, I don't know, however many articles you had to deal with on an annual basis. Yeah, let's back up a second, because I think um, I do want to answer that. But I do want to make sure that there's a lot about, you know, we're sort of talking about kind of big issues, but there's a lot about the editorial process, which is really kind of a slave to some very basic things like what editorial, like online editorial system management systems. Um, and so there, there's a lot of structure in editing. And some of that structure just has to do with you know, things that kind of everybody arrive at, but increasingly it has to do with the fact that you're all on the same systems and they all have their same quirks and their same built-in processes. And so a lot of what you do is just kind of follow those processes. And that has very significant effects. Um, so for example, at ISQ, like most other journals on Scholar One, uh, you have a kind of roadmap for what happens when a piece comes in, right? A piece gets submitted, it gets checked for various things by a managing editor, usually a graduate student. Uh, then it goes to uh, then it goes into a process whereby it's looked at by uh, by an where an editor is assigned. That editor looks at the piece. That editor makes a determination about whether or not they think it should move forward to peer review. Uh, once it moves forward. Uh, you trigger a set of processes when it goes through thing, you know, when it, when it, when it, when the reviews come back, you know, you're, you're given a set of information about the papers, which have to, you know, which are both the kind of comments that the authors write, but they're also, I mean, that the reviewers write, but they're also a questionnaire. Uh, oftentimes, if you, there's a lot of inertia because you inherit questionnaires, you inherit ways that, that the, that the system has built in prompts that condition how reviewers look at things and you actually have to think about what those prompts do to the way they evaluate pieces. Uh, and, and oftentimes people just don't even change that. Um, a lot of editors don't necessarily understand the way the system works. And so they think they can and can't do certain things based on uh, configurations they've inherited. So there's a kind of a lot of things that just kind of are now deeply baked into the back end that have effects on, on just have actually non non-trivial effects on how things work. Um, uh, so, but I've described. Could you give an example on that? I mean, something uh, not obviously a specific right. example, but so, something a little bit more so, concrete. So, uh, a lot of uh, so when we, a lot of journal questionnaires. So, if you've ever reviewed for a journal on one of these systems, you know that you basically get a form, right? And the form has a set of questions on it. Uh, and you've probably noticed if you review for different journals that those questions are different, right? So sometimes you ask a question like to assign a numerical ranking to the paper from zero mm -hmm. to 100, right? Sometimes you'll be asked to um, specify, you know, if the, the, the manuscript has met certain kinds of requirements. So is the literature review adequate, right? Is the language adequate, right? Is, you know, in, in these, these, can, these vary to some degree, there's some sameness, but they also vary across journals. You think about something like the fact that, that if one of the first things that happens is you're prompted with a question that says, does the, does the manuscript adequately deal with the literature? What that signals is that, um, adequately dealing with the literature is a really important part of the peer review process, right? Mm -hmm. And so that can sure. condition how much both the reviewers are likely to focus on emitted literature and how much the editors are likely to, when they get a bunch of kind of data points back with yes, no, good, bad, what those data points are going to look like. And those can have 
influences on. So like for me, it was always, I always felt like um, uh, admitted literature is never a reason in of itself to reject a piece because you can fix admitted literature, right? You can't fix argument. But for reviewers who are overwhelmed with time and also with editors, not a piece not signaling that it knows the literature is a nice kind of shorthand mm-hmm. for, for how you might evaluate the rest of the piece. And so if the prompts uh, reinforce that, that's going to have certain kinds of effects. If you're asked to give a numerical score, I mean, what the heck does that mean? I don't know what a 75 versus a 90 means on a numerical score. <laughs> I don't think anybody else does. And so sure. maybe that's just a throwaway question, but maybe it's not. We tried to implement questions that asked for um, comparative assessments. So we didn't ask, you know, how good is this on a scale to zero to five? We asked, compared to other pieces you've reviewed, how does this stack up? Compared for other pieces that you've seen appear in ISQ, how does this stack up? What percentile is it in? But there are ways that we structured that question that, you know, didn't really work very well, right? So, you know, if a piece is getting, is, is as, is in the top 50% of pieces that's published in the journal, but that's the lowest ranking. Well, that's in theory, right? Being in the top 50% of pieces that's published in the, in the journal actually means it's publishable, but on the ranking system, that's actually a very low ranking. (laughs) You know, we used to joke that we kept that there because we wanted things, we wanted to improve the quote unquote quality of the journal. And so we didn't want to publish things that were only top 50%. Uh, but you know, it's a some degree, it doesn't make any sense. Right. Um, right. Uh, so, uh, you know, we try to institute questions like, you know, if you were the editor of the journal, would you envision accepting that piece, which gives you a different kind of information than just a kind of R&R, right? Sure, sure. Or we tried to, or we tried to, we asked a confidence question, right? How confident are you in your recommendation, which is a way to prime people to think about, okay, well, I recommend an R&R. What kind of an R&R is that really? Which is, I think, really important information, given that, um, you know, basically anything is R&Rable, really. And a lot of people, a lot of reviewers' sense of what's an R&R is going to be conditioned by a set of priors that aren't shared about about what an R&R actually means. Sure, uh, sure. And, and also they, their own experience publishing, yeah. Exactly. So, I mean, it's just you're kind of, so you can use the, so, so how you structure that can elicit different kinds of information and it can also probably prompt people for what's in the content of the review. Um, and but but oftentimes that's just inherited, right? You don't change those. That's just what you got from the last team. And you may not even know you can change those, right? You may think that they're hardwired into the system. Um, so, uh, so uh, so editors may have more agency than they're aware of, but their perspective on it is constrained by these these software systems that nobody, at least I, have never given any thought to. I just thought they were sort of uh, simple tr- mechanisms of transmission. Right. And, and, and so publishers have to pay to change some of those settings. So they don't like to do it a lot. <laughs> um, so they like to keep things kind of as they are. Also remember that anytime you change those settings, you are changing the what the data that gets reported in the system means. So if you change a questionnaire, you might be able to change the questionnaire in a way that you think is more helpful, but it means you can't, you can no longer compare the outputs across years. Across yeah. years. So like we changed, we got rid of the major versus minor revisions category. So we changed it to conditional accept. So we changed what had been minor revisions to a conditional acceptance recommendation. 
Um, and we actually did that because we wanted the category of conditional acceptance, um, because part of our philosophy was that some of the things that we wanted pieces to do aesthetically were things that were better to push authors to do on the back end than on the front end of the review process mm -hmm. post acceptance. So we wanted to have a kind of stick there at the conditional accept stage to tell people to do things that maybe they weren't told to do during the reviewer process, or frankly, to undo some of the damage that the reviewer process can do to the sort of, um, to the, the quality of the prose of a manuscript. Sure. Um, but that conditional acceptance then meant, for one thing, it meant that, that now reviewers could recommend conditional acceptance, which wasn't really something that we thought about because we didn't think that reviewers were in a position to recommend what we considered a conditional acceptance. But it also meant that now every minor revision for the last 10, you know, the last five or six years that, that I could have been SCAR 1 was now going to be coded in the system as a conditional acceptance. They didn't have the same meaning anymore. Uh, so yeah, um, there's a lot there. And I think... Um, you know, I some of the ways I've, I've you know, I, I've, I have, I, I will say, been a complete jerk to some editors because sometimes you get a little high on yourself and you think you know what you're doing. Um, <laughs> and I had, a, I had an editor really call me out for it. And I, I really actually appreciate that. And after after I got the read the riot act, I was like, thank you. I deserve that. <laughs> but there are other times when you just you can look at what's going on in the journal and you know that some of what's happening has to do with the way that they structure how they interact with the online system. So. Uh, I am pretty confident. I am pretty confident that I can tell, looking at some at journals, when the editors never interface with the online system, when they only leave that to their graduate students or their managing editors, uh, because um, it because it means that they're not because I, there's things that happen when the editors aren't watching the show. Um, mm -hmm. Or you know that in our waiting for grad students to 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 let them know that something's happened in the system, sure. Like for example, it just means you have fewer eyes watching a manuscript get moldier and moldier as nobody uh, sends the review in for it. Right. Um, and if you have more eyes in the system, then that means it's easier to catch that 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 that's happening. Right. It's easier for things to slip through the cracks. So you know, we it's possible that a piece will never get assigned an editor. Right. Uh, and maybe the alert isn't set up properly, or maybe the alert gets lost because it only goes to one person that hasn't been assigned an editor, and it just sits. Um, and so, a lot of the times when you talk about journals that are really slow, or where you know they, you can see the notification that all the reviews are in, and yet there's no answer. Part of that is because there aren't enough people, you know, sort of double and triple checking the system. Uh, and so you can know, yeah. So there's just a lot of kind of of, of stuff that has to do with both what the nature of the online system is and then how you are handling that organizationally that can affect things like turnaround times at the journal. So, well, so, so some of this is uh, procedural that doesn't affect substantive outcomes, right? I mean, if uh, the reviews are in, but somebody misses the message, eventually, presumably the author sends an email saying, Hey, I see on the system that all the reviews are in, but if it's a, been six months, uh, since that status changed and nobody said anything to me about it. So eventually the editors, does that have a substantive impact? Um, I think it can actually, because, um, if you think about one of the major metrics by which journals are judged is the turnaround time. Uh, mm -hmm. and that's one of the few things that we all kind of have in common. And certainly if you look at, uh, all of the reports that association journals, uh, put in, they all provide granular data on their turnaround time and they all talk about improving the turnaround time. Uh, and it's frankly the, at least for me, if, if a piece has sat for 120 days, 
there's a lot more pressure to make a quick decision than there is if a piece has only been there for 30 days. Um, uh, and right. some editors might be able to push that completely out of their mind, uh, but I'm not able to do that. And I suspect that even, that, so I do think that things like how long has this been sitting can affect that. Also, if you think about it, right, so if I um, have a piece that's sitting for 90 days, right, which for us was a, was a really long time, um, and uh, it's sitting there because you've been playing, um, you've been playing uh, basically uh, chase the reviewer, right? Mm -hmm. um, you get stuck in what I, what the, the cycle of death, which is that the reviewer keeps on saying, I'll get it to you next week. And then they don't, mm -hmm. but because the reviewer is communicating with you and knows that they're overdue, you kind of keep on holding out hope, mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> right? Which is, you know, so you haven't gone to an emergency reviewer. Well, if I go to an emergency reviewer, Somebody I know will get well. First of all, if I have to go to an emergency reviewer, the pool of people I know will give me a quick turnaround is smaller, um, or who are willing to respond to that kind of request, so that that can shape the input into the the piece. Right? You, it may not be the best reviewer for that piece, but it may be the person that I know will will get the job done quickly. Right? Sure. So that can affect the. It's not to say that a person's a bad reviewer. I'm not. Those people are generally are good reviewers, but they may not be the per, the right. They may not be the perfect fit, right? Sure. Um, they are also under time pressure because they're doing something that's a quick turnaround for you, and you're under time pressure to get that in. So that's gonna that may affect the review, right? It may not affect the and even if it doesn't affect the top line recommendation, editors respond differently to an R and R review that is four pages long and detailed than an R and R, R, and R review that is a paragraph. Right. right. Um, you know, there's a sweet spot for an R's R and R's that are too long are death by a thousand cuts, right? What they make it look like is that the, 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 the authors have to do so much that it's just not going to be, it's, it's, there's not enough. It's just too much for an R and R when you have to sort of set these limits on R and R's, right? Ones that are too short are kind of half-assed and you can't really use them. So they don't, they, they're not useful in rendering the decision. Uh, so, you know, the, if you think about it, timing, the, the, the time, the time that's elapsed can actually have through subtle, through sort of through subtle ways that would we really would prefer not to, but also through other ways, like what happens to people when they're making a quick decision, the way that affects their judgment can in fact have an effect on the outcome. Does the time pressure that you you mentioned, not you specifically, but in in from your perspective as having served as an editor, does that incline give that in conjunction with the volume of manuscripts here that journals are receiving these days, does that incline, do you think people more to rejections than it does either R and R's or, uh, acceptances because the rejection is then the papers off the manuscript is off the table and, and that albatross of that long time turnaround time isn't on on the or hanging around their necks anymore. Yeah, I mean, I I will say that there are editors out there who probably don't care very much about their turnaround time, um, and that might be the right way to think about it. All things being equal, um, and I'll, turnaround time is actually one of those things where it it's it's one of a number of areas in which we're asking peer to review peer review to do too many different things, uh, and so we don't we haven't really. 
I think we need to think more systematically about the trade-offs, right? So if, because peer review is professional certification, turnaround time matters a lot because if you're on the tenure clock and that piece takes a year with a journal and then gets rejected, you know, that's less time that you have to send it elsewhere or to, you know, and try to get it published, right? So we think faster turnaround times are good. Faster turnaround times, though, can also reduce the quality of the decision. So if you think about the primary purpose of peer review being to screen and improve manuscripts, the quest for faster turnaround times might be counterproductive. So mm-hmm. in that sense, you know, everybody's making a decision about what they value more, and that's up to the editor, although we do know empirically that authors will start shunning journals if they know it takes a really long time, because who wants to wait a year, right? Yeah. If you, if you don't have to. But, uh, more, but more specifically, so the, this, is, this is, I mean, the fundamental reality and I already have mentioned this, but the re- and I say this every time I write about this or talk about this, the fundamental reality of journal publishing is, or journal journal editing and journal publishing is the is the increasing number of total submissions going to journals and IR. I think this is actually probably true across all disciplines. We tend to lag the natural sciences. I mean, natural sciences look much more intense than we do on this front, uh, but. Um, so, you know, when I started at, at ISQ, it had 470 submissions. When I finished, it had like 660 something, right? So over wow. five years, that's what, like, you know, kind of a 20% jump more. Wow. Well, no, it's more than that. It's, um, let me do my math. I mean, it's it's like maybe a 30 or 40, I mean, whatever. It's, it's not a 50% jump, but it's pretty close to that. And I think now they're well over 700, right? Within a year and a half. Um, so increases of, of five to 10% were quite typical. When the prior team started, they had maybe a hundred and something submissions a year or 200 and it went to 400 under their tenure, right? So you see these trends. Um, uh, I, have, I, ha- I have a database of the top 10 trips peer reviewed journals, uh, basically as far back as anybody could get me data through about 2000 and 10 or 11. And while there's variation within the journals, some of them are going down, some of them are going up. Once you, when you look at the sum trend line, it's just kind of straight up, right? <laughs> and in terms of number of submissions, in terms of number of submissions. And there are a bunch of things driving that the field's getting bigger, it's getting bigger through globalization. So, you know, there are more scholars from more countries who are submitting publication pressures are always going up. There's the publication arms race that has different dynamics. Uh, People are under pressure to publish more before they get jobs in order to be competitive for jobs. People are under pressure to publish more to get tenure and tenure systems because the standards keep going going up. It's an arms race, right? Mm-hmm. And you have systems like like you have you have national systems where you basically there's a lot of just straight up bean counting of how much you've published and your your salary may be tied to that or the research budget of your institution may be tied to that. So the pressure is always to increase the number of publications at the same time that there are more and more scholars um, around publishing. And so there's just, there's no end in sight to that. I mean, one of the things that editors will talk about is the increasing number of submissions from mainland China. And that pool hasn't even begun to be adequately tapped. But in a lot of Chinese universities, if you want to get, you know, a, a decent raise in your wage, you have to publish in a quote unquote international journal, which primarily means English language journals. Right. So, uh, and I think we're seeing increasing publications out of East Asia, China, Korea, Taiwan, increasing submissions. And I don't see any way. You also see increasing submissions from Brazil, for example. I don't think that you know, there may be variation over time, but this is just 
going to keep on increasing, especially because now we have this notion that we should be publishing, uh, which is a good thing. We should be publishing more pieces from the Global South, and we should be encouraging submission to the Global South, which is going to just drive more submissions. So you're talking about an environment where submissions are increasing, and while journals have been able to negotiate for additional space, uh, you know that is not unlimited. Uh, and so you have more and more pieces chasing fewer and fewer um, slots. Uh, and under those conditions, the, the, you have to, so if you, you have to sort of think about things like, you know, so I think IO now is like a 5% acceptance rate, right? ISQ is maybe at nine or 10%. Um, uh, when I was first in the business, when I submitted my first piece to IO, it didn't get accepted. It wound up going into this short-lived online supplement called Dialogue IO. At that era, I've been told they had a 50% R&R rate maybe a 25, 30, 40% acceptance rate, right? Um, so these differences mean, and it's not like the quality of pieces is going down. The field is more and more professionalized. So the quality of pieces is actually going up over time. So that means that you are trying to decide, you know, so if, we, if you think you can have a 10% target without building up a, an intolerable backlog, right? And you th then you have to ask yourself, okay, what is the conversion rate I'm aiming for at an R&R? Right. So let's say you think that you're, you're aiming for 75% of the pieces that you are and are to be accepted. Well, then you have to think about, okay, so what is the standards by which, what, what do we need to then say that this is an R&R, &R, this piece that is in revisable to publication is something we're going to R&R. And this other piece, which is revisable to publication, is something we're not going to R&R. &R. Um, and a lot of the times, the way that you do this, I think the only way that editors can do this, right, that you introduce these sort of subjective considerations I've talked about, is this a big enough impact? Is it important enough to enough people? But fundamentally, the the, the most fair thing you have to do is to ask yourself, how much how much revision does this need? Right. So the standard mm -hmm. doesn't become, is it revisable? And actually, I think in theory, any piece is revisable to publication. It's just a matter of how much effort the editors and the reviewers and the author put into it. But, sure. but putting that aside, right, is it's not, is this re revisable, but it's, it's what is, how much work has to be done to it to make it revisable. That has certain implications, right? It means that pieces that are, um, oftentimes it means that pieces that are less, um, innovative or challenging are going to have a better shot than pieces that are. It's going to mean that pieces that are written more professionally are going to have a better shot than pieces that are maybe just as good substantively, but are written less professionally, right? And thus just need more kind of aesthetic work or rearranging or reorganization or a different set of literatures that they're engaged with, things that really shouldn't matter, right, objectively. Uh, and so what this does is it is increases, I think, the conservative bias of the process mm -hmm. of high-volume journals. Uh, it also means you're making a lot of decisions that could really go in any direction, um, which is not the position you want to be in, right? And that's when you start getting the the sort of the 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 because that just increases the stochasticity. Because you know, we've I've talked about this as if there's some as if the pieces that are getting R and Rs where the reviewers are asking for less are really require less fewer revisions than the pieces that are getting R and Rs when the reviewers are asking for no more. And that's not at all necessarily the case, right? Maybe somebody's gotten a more conscientious reviewer who just you know has more advice to give, right. <laughs> or has made more attention to the piece. Um, so that's the kind of problem. I mean, I think the way that I summarize this um, is is actually that that Arthur Arthur Stinchcomb was right when he was writing about this issue back in the '60s, which is that the um, the more valuable 
the more weight we place on peer-reviewed journal articles as a way of sorting in the field, that is, as a signal of quality or of scholarship, and this is a, as, a, as academic capital, key academic capital for, for your career, uh, the less valuable it probably becomes as a signal, the more noise there is in the process, the more stochasticity, randomness, subjectivity. Um, and I don't, I, I think that's actually a, a vise that we're trapped in, and I don't think there's any way out of it. So that gets us to these, some of the bigger questions you mentioned in your first post to the Duck of Minerva about these topics that the peer review process is held together by masking tape and pixie dust. Is that what you're talking about? This growing number of manuscripts on not a fixed uh, pagination, but journals, you can only start so many journals and so number one, you can only start so many journals. It takes time to get them into the ISI, et cetera. But also the there's even within that, there is this selection effect. So people want to publish in IO or ISQ. They're not going to want to publish in these uh, newer journals that have don't have the reputation. Tenure rides on it. You know, there are many institutions where if you don't publish in a select handful of journals, your tenure prospects are, if not zero, very slim. So, it, I mean, how does all this just tie together? Are we just, are we doomed <laughs> as a discipline? I mean, what do we do about this? Well, so there are a couple of different things that could be happening. So, okay. There's the question of the peer review process, I think, being under increasing strain, right? And, and my answer to that is that we need to make decisions about what exactly the peer review process is really for, right? And we can make a bunch of different decisions about that, um, but, but we should be a little bit, we shouldn't be asking it to do so much different kinds of work. Um, in my perfect world, we would reduce publication pressure, right? We just wouldn't expect people to be publishing so much and we'd be expecting them to, um, you know, and, and there are ways in which this might be happening weirdly by default, right? So at Georgetown, the University Rank and Tenure Committee got so frustrated with having thousands of pages of material that they now say you have to submit your six best pieces, hmm. right? Now, it's true that it doesn't solve the problem because your reviewers are, I mean, your, 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 your rhetoric writers are still seeing the kind of bulk of your work. And so they still have standards about your publication rate, but you know, things like that, like sort of capping the number of pieces that are considered at various stages of the career process could, for example, reduce some of the pressure to publish. Maybe. <laughs> uh, right, uh, right. Right. So uh, there is the sort of whole dynamic of that. And I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit more in a second, but there's the other problem, which is that, um, the economics of journal publishing are really uncertain right now. So, I mean, everybody's read about how, you know, libraries are being crushed by journal subscription, fee, subscription fees. Uh, it's eating up enormous amounts of their budget. There's the open access movement. There's the economics of open access. Um, and there's the way that open access has also made it easier for predatory journals to present. I mean, there's all sorts of like stuff going on. And so a lot of people who are in the journal publishing business really will tell you they don't know what this business is going to look like in five years, right? It's a business that depends on unpaid labor. Uh, it depends on gating. Uh, it depends on, uh, uh, but there's a lot of, so, you know, you have the, your for-profit 
publishers that are hoovering up a lot of money, like Elsevier, however you say it, and, and Sage to some degree, Taylor and Francis. Then you have your nonprofits like Oxford and Cambridge, and I don't know what their economics are like, but there's a general sense that this is going to break at some point. Um, and so right now it's because the, the, bar the, the sort of barriers to entry of starting up new journals are low, you know, a lot of way people are reacting is we'll just have more journals and we'll bundle them in and better justify our, our, the, the exorbitant prices we're charging by just adding more journals. Um, but, you know, I don't know. And the other thing is that people think that, you know, there's this misunderstanding that, you know, in the age of push button publishing shouldn't, uh, why should there be any space limits at all? Right. And the answer is that the major costs of journal publishing aren't actually in printing anymore. They're, you know, a lot of journals are virtual and, you know, a lot of journals are, a lot of printed journals are going the way of the dodo. It's actually the, the production cost is associated with the layout and the copy editing and the kind of backend interface with, with the, with the indexers and, and things like that. Um, and so it's not free, you know, the only way it's free to publish you know, a paper, on, you know, it's not free anyway, because you have server storage. And, you know, if it's a high volume journal, you actually have to pay for the bandwidth and stuff like that. But it, you know, stipulate that's much less expensive than what the costs are to publish a journal right now. You know, so the only way you could do it is, you know, you basically everybody moves to something like LaTeX, you have a standardized, um, you just have a standard template, and you just pop everything into that. And you, 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 you don't worry too much about the copy editing <laughs> and the reference checking, or you pay people to do that. I think I estimated, or, or you know, or what another model might be that universities accept the cost. Universities say we're no longer going to subscribe to journals, but we're going to basically run in-house journals, and we'll pay people a salary to do this. Um, so we don't know how this is going to go, but the main point is that it is not the case that simply because we live in a virtual world, you can go to infinite number of pages. Um, right. Uh, right. And that's a very common misunderstanding. So. This might be solved in some way when the economic house of cards falls apart, <laughs> and then we have some sort of outcome, and that could go anywhere from open access journals to we keep doing what we're doing, but uh, but there's there's a squeeze on the amount of subventions that are underwriting journals, and so we have to do more, we have to more do to more distributed free labor. People are coming up ways of trying to centralize production processes so you don't have a duplicative overhead on the bureaucratic side. This might be a way that some of the associations go, right, is that they bring a lot of the production in-house and they just have academic editors. Um, another, or it could be that we're all just kind of publishing stuff on our blogs and we're doing post-publication review, right, where we're not, mm -hmm. or, or we're doing MB, mm -hmm. the equivalent of, of um, you know, we're all on archive, right, or we're all on the social science, the SSRN or something, and it becomes not a question of whether it's past peer review, but a question of how it's been received by the community. So it could go in any of these directions that will, and, and how it goes could upend everything. But right now, the basic, you know, what I say it's held together by pixie dust, it's just, you know, response rates from reviewers continue to decline because reviewers feel overloaded. People talk about reviewing 100 to 200 pieces a year. Um, uh, you know, people who are really kind of in-demand reviewers, people are getting the same pieces repeatedly when it goes to the journal cycle because, you know, there aren't that, you know, because even though there might be 5,000 reviewers in the field, it's actually a matching issue. And, you know, there are maybe 50 reviewers who really should be reviewing that piece. And those same reviewers are going to be asked at every journal, right? Right. Um, uh, so there's the fact that editors are, I think, at high volume journals, pretty overloaded. I mean, at a huge team, I still spend 80% of my time running the journal, right? Um, 
And so if you're going to kind of try to do this right, whether or not you succeed or fail, you're putting an enormous time investment. Um, people often complain about bad editorial decisions. And, you know, when I went into this business, I thought I was going to be that editor who checked everything really carefully. But at the end of the day, when you've got 30 pieces next on your queue and you've got, you know, one, two weak R&Rs and a rejection, how much time are you going to really spend making sure that everything was, was, you know, that those reviewers are really, really producing high quality reviews or just like, oh, you know, they've written a fair amount whatever, they've done their job. So there's just so much triage involved in the process that there's a, that, that erodes, I think, the quality of judgment at every level. So that's when I say it's held together by, by Tixie Ducks. I mean, it's held in, 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 in scotch tape. It's, you know, enormous amount of uncompensated labor um, that, uh, that can really, if you let it eat up an editor's life, um, if you don't let it eat up your life, you actually are not doing necessarily the, the optimal job you ought to be doing. So you're making those trade-offs. Um, there's the fact that you're trying to scramble to get reviewers on any given piece to get to get, hopefully get quality reviews to make sure that those things are coming in on time. Uh, you're you want to make sure that people evaluating it know what they're doing. Um, you you have to sort of you know you want to make sure that you you are do you know so it's just it's just a lot of stuff that's going on and um and it feels often it felt to me often like we are at the the brink of everything kind of falling apart um you know or you're the thing i like to talk about in particular is you just learn to live with an error rate right you just you know you, you stop going from everything wants to be perfect to just there will be a certain rate of error there will be a certain you know whether it's at the level of typos or, 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 or sort of wrong bullet points that slip into a decision letter all the way through, you know, you're making a bad decision. And when you're dealing with 700 manuscripts, an error rate of 3% is pretty tolerable. That's a high level of quality assurance. But, you know, if you're the author who's in that 3% who got a bum decision, that's not tolerable and it shouldn't be. So how do you right. deal with that? Especially given how much is writing on success publishing in some of these journals like ISQ, right, and precisely because the the increased number of journals in some places, right, journal quote unquote journal quality is not an issue, right, but in a lot of places it is, and you know one of the things about having so many journals is that it, it may not be democratizing the process; it may be having a power law effect where the um, where the the top journals get more and more prestigious by virtue of the fact that there's so much other stuff out there that it becomes hard to distinguish between, you know, a, a C journal, a C plus journal, a B minus journal, a B plus journal because it, there's just so many of them, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we don't mm -hmm. know the way that that's going. So it almost becomes a class based journal publishing enterprise. Well, it's always been class based, and the thing we don't know is whether the increased number of journals is making it less class based or whether it's making it more class based because it's um it's flooding out that you know if it's basically devaluing the next you know the, the a class b journal right a class c journal and so it's making that class a, those class a journals uh more important than they would have been do you think these pressures discourage uh, conscientious scholars from taking over editorships? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think, um, you know, I don't want to get into details, but then, you know, the, my understanding is that the number of bids for high volume journals is, is not, has been going down over time. Um, uh, that there are high volume journals that receive no bids, right? Um, that, uh, 
people scramble to do things. Now, there's variation here, right? If you're at a journal like IO, where it's a foundation, and so the journal is not underwriting an association, mm-hmm. uh, there's a fair amount of money going into supporting that journal. And it's much easier to take over IO because you know you'll have a professional copy editor, right, who is, who's, or who's doing style and presentation stuff, not just you know, the level copy thing you get out of the subcontractor in South Asia, right? Sure. Um, you know that you're going to be able to hire, uh, you may have a full-time editor that you just goes with the journal, right? Uh, journals that are underwritten by, um, heavily by institutions have that world politics, you know, maintains the same managing editor for a very long time. International security does as well. Um, so those journals are comparatively easy, comparatively easy to take over if you, for any scholar who makes the decision that it's time for them to be providing quote unquote public goods or whatever, rather than just focusing on their own work because of a place that they're at or their own mentality, right? Uh, journals like ISQ are tough because the subvention's pretty good, but it doesn't pay for that amount of stuff. Uh, and so you have, to, you have to find the sweet spot of uh, schools that consider it a prestige bump to get a journal like ISQ, which is, we may, t- I mean, I, I, is it a top tier journal? I mean, probably reputationally, but it's not, it doesn't have the impact factor, right? It's not like IO or IS in some sub communities. So it's a little bit, uh, ISQ's position in this hierarchy is a little bit more, you know, it, it, we may know that it scores, you know, in the top three on reputation, right? We may know that. But uh, administrators looking at the impact factor aren't going to say, oh, wow, this is, they're going to say this is 12th or 14th in any given year, right? Mm. Uh, so journals like that need a place that has the resources to underwrite it, uh, but, they, but also considers it a good get. <laughs> so, you know, um, and, and that, that band is probably narrower than would be optimal, um, if that makes sense. Right, so, it does. So one of the patterns I've seen is that some of the journals that are more specialized and so have people who are more committed to them as intellectual projects, uh, and but also are less expensive to run because they have fewer submissions, those are sometimes more sought after than some of the journals that are, you know, kind of monsters, right? Like, right. You know, so. Right, right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, so I, that's a way of saying that there are lots of people out there who have the... Um, the prestige factor associated with their name that they would be willing to, that, that you'd think they'd be running the journals, this idea that the best of the best ought to be running the journals, the, the 60 year old scholar who has done everything should be the one running the journal. Um, and a lot of those people just don't want to bother because they right. don't want to ruin five years of their life. Right. <laughs> but the flip side of that is that there's actually a, probably a mistake there, which is that there, there's no necessary relationship between the skill set of being a really productive scholar and being a good editor. They're really yes. different things. Yep. And it's actually a little bit like this known problem in national in, in places like the Department of Defense, where the way that you you rise up in the ranks as a, as a career civil servant is by really good being really good on policy matters, right? So you're a really good manager of the country desk for Japan, right? Or the the terrorism desk, right, or whatever. But you then get promoted into positions which are not subject matter expertise or policy positions, they're managerial positions. Mm-hmm. And there's no necessary relationship between being really good at managing relations. I mean, there's some, it's not, it's not uncorrelated, but they're different skill sets, right? So places like the Central Intelligence Agency, you can get to be a GS-15, which is the highest rank, by being a, a, a subject matter expert. 
but you can't do that in a lot of organizations. You have to move into management. It's a little bit like, you know, universities, right? We know sure. that the best administrators are not necessarily the best scholars. Same thing with journals. Uh, and so, you know, when I got the journal or maybe some of the people in the current team got the journal, there was all this backbiting about how, you know, they were not of the quality of scholars. Now, I don't know how well we did as editors. I mean, I think the current team is doing a good job. I think we did a pretty good job. I have to think that. Uh, but um, <laughs> but I honestly don't think had I been the, you know, the sort of most productive best scholar in the world, it would have made me a better editor. Right. You could easily imagine that uh, the most productive scholar in the world may be completely convinced of their own um, theoretical priors and not have any intellectual flexibility right. to consider others. That would be a horrible journal editor. Or, and this is where this the, the fact that the journal ecology and the environment is changing so fast. So if you cut your teeth, if your understanding of what it means to edit a journal is from 15 years ago, that's not what it means to, enter a, to edit a journal now. Um, if your publishing environment where you made your name is a publishing environment and when 50% of articles submitted to the top journal in the field were getting an R&R, exactly. that's not the current environment, right? And um, the journal environment, I mean, I'm 45, 46, 47, I'm 46. Um, <laughs> the journal environment in which I got, uh, I got, um, in which I got uh, a job and tenure doesn't exist anymore. It's much harder to get into journals now than it was then. Mm -hmm. So the journal environment faced by my PhD students is much more Darwinian. Um, so I go, and this is why I'm, I'm reticent. Like I'm two years out, so I think I still have something to say. I don't know if I'll have anything useful to say six or seven years out from editing. Sure, um, sure. Uh, and I go to panels sometimes where I listen to people who are really smart, accomplished scholars who were great journal editors, people I modeled myself after, right? Because um, I like the way they ran their journals, but the way they talk about journal publishing, it's just, it's overtaken by events. It's not the same world anymore. Mm -hmm. Right. So. I want to circle back on, or take us back down. Uh, so I have two sort of concluding questions. You posted to Facebook uh, and then you followed up on this with a post to the doc very recently in the last day or two about the obligations of journals to share the reviewers' comments. And you have a whole range of very good reasons why, uh, with the reviewers, that they should, that the reviews should be shared with the reviewers. And one of the questions I posed to you on Facebook is, um, there's this tendency in the discipline, I think, not to name and shame journals. And part of it, I understand the point you made, that journal, that editorships uh, at many journals, not all, but many, pass after five or so, six years. And so it, you know, there's, you don't want to tar a new editorial team with an old brush. But at the same time, how can we, how can we improve the processes and procedures of journals if we don't call them out when they, when they don't do the right thing. I mean, I, I, yeah, I mean, so. But call them out by name, right? And, and it's not just, I, I'm not uh, specifically targeting you. I, I, I think there's a general reticence that nobody wants to say, oh, journal X did such and such a bad thing because Maybe they're not altruistic about the next editorial team and not want it, but they don't want to get well, I tagged think, as a troublemaker and not be able to publish in that journal ever right, again. Right, right. I mean, there's the, 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 the journal, the editors at journals that are high prestige have a lot of power because people feel compelled to publish in them. 
Uh, and so it's hard to basically tell that journal to, you know, to F off, right? Um, and in fact, a lot of the reason why people are more, I mean, why we didn't have as much trouble getting reviewers at ISQ as I think some of the smaller journal, you know, the sort of more spe specialized journals that ISA had have had trouble getting reviewers is because people feel like it's important to maintain good relations with ISQ and they might not feel that they, they might have an easier time saying no to other, you know, other journals like IO. And I think the same IOIS people have trouble. I think people who are interested in, in, in those journals are not going to turn down reviewer requests from them generally um if they think that because they think because they even though everybody says it doesn't make a difference and it doesn't really and you try to actually blind the author as much as you can i mean it you know it's not entirely absent from the process right i mean the, if you feel positively disposed towards somebody it's going to make some level of difference um uh Although if you feel really negatively disposed towards somebody in my experience, you're also, it also makes a difference in the way of being more generous because you want to bend over backwards, not to be biased. Right. Uh, but, um, uh, but um, you know, which is why, frankly, you know, at the end of the day, I'm an advocate for triple blinding process, you know, for, for instituting processes where the editors do not know the names of the authors. But um, so I'm dancing around the question because I don't want to answer it. I didn't call out <laughs> journals because I was at that point dealing with two journals that I had reviewed for, or I'd been invited to review for where in one of the cases I hadn't gotten the decision letter or the other referee reports. Um, and Debbie Avant sort of pointed out that she didn't really know how to transmit the decision letters. So they were just sharing editorial reports. I mean, the, the other review reports, and she didn't really want to, uh, boycott journals. And to me, that's sort of a good faith effort. Look, if you're sharing the review reports, should you be setting the, sharing the decision letter? Yes. But at least you're sharing like the, the, the other reports. So that's better sure. than nothing. Right. Sure. Um, so I didn't know what they were doing. Um, I mean, my, because my, the way I generally approach things is I will say, I say yes to most journals that ask me to review if they, if it seems at all plausible or I'm not, you know, on the verge of a nervous breakdown because of other work. Uh, and I'll basically review for them and then I'll see what they do. Right. And if they don't send me the decision letter, I'll follow up and I'll, or the review reports I'll follow up and I'll say, Hey, was this an oversight? And then I'll sort of figure out what's going on. Right. So I just told, I did just tell a journal that, um, as best I could tell from my exchanges with them, they do not share this information and they would, I would not review the piece again. I would, even though it was R and R. I only found out it was R and R because I looked on the, the system online. Um, and you know, I wouldn't review for them again until they changed the policy. Um, and that was, uh, okay. I mean, that was a journal called international journal out of Canada. It's a policy journal. Um, you know, hopefully they'll change their minds. Um, uh, I, I was not clear whether international relations of the Asia Pacific did that based on sort of what I looked at in my reviewer history, but, um, but they told me, they assured me they would do that. So of course I'll review for them. Not a problem. Sure. Um, uh, I think I tried to get the new managing editor of international security to tell us whether or not international security had changed their policy on this. He would not bite. Um, I don't know what that means. Historically, international security has not shared. Uh, they certainly haven't shared reviewer reports with reviewers. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. uh, and um, that's their right. You can run a journal any way that you want to. Um, a lot of people, parenthetically, will get upset with IO or IS for having certain kinds of biases. 
in my view is, you know, if you think they're biased against your kind of work and you think there's good evidence of it, don't submit to them and don't cite them, right? They're their own thing. They can do whatever they want, right? They're, they're in the business of doing right by their journal as they see, as they see their journal being shipped, right? Um, it's not an association journal, right? The issues are different. Sure. Um, but, um, but, you know, and so, you know, at this point, I won't review for IS unless, you know, I, I, unless they tell me that, that they've changed their policy. Um, so, um, but it's not very, I mean, the thing is that it's, it's not that common anymore. So it's actually sort of a surprise to me when I don't, and part of it is because anybody who's on editorial manager, editorial manager is set up, you know, you write your, you put your, um, you put your, um, you, you write an email with your decision in it and the, and it auto attaches the reviews and auto reproduces the reviews. I don't, I've never, I've never used it. So I don't fully know the, the precise details, but, and then it creates an anonymized version and generates an anonymized version based on a single decision letter that you write. And I know it's that because there's actually a security flaw that will allow you that it still, I think hasn't been fixed, but which would allow you to full, um, editorial manager into thinking that you were uh, the, an author that you to go to having an author review. If you if you were in the author, if it thought you were in the author role and you directly access the decision letter, it would unblind it because it would think it, you were that author, which is something right. I, okay. I, I found out because uh, my iPhone autofilled. <laughs> and then I spent a lot of time trying to figure out what the heck was going on. I thought it was a timing issue or something, and I finally was able to reproduce it. And then I spent a lot of time writing to the journal and to the editorial manager people saying, could you please fix this? Last time I checked, it still wasn't fixed. So fix it if it's not. <laughs> right. But, I, but that also gives you a sense of what the back end actually does. And what it does is it it takes the variable string for where the author name is and, and, and puts asterisks, asterisks in, instead of the author. Right. When it when it when it's sent to the to the reviewers, but Scholar One, uh, like I still like I've read these manuals a hundred times, and I still think I must be missing something, right? That there must be some way to automate this process. And I know that as I put up that there is supposedly a function that can be turned on, although not from the administrator, as far as you can tell from the administrator privileges, that will give the decision letter at least when you go to the details panel for um, for something where you're revising an R&R or you're reviewing an R&R manuscript. But it doesn't make any of this easy. And the only way to really do it that I've been able to figure out on Scholar One, again, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. And I hope somebody will prominently explain how to do this is to essentially cut and paste the decision letter into the email to the the thank you email to the authors or to create an attachment that you attach to the thing that's sent out with and then manually attach it and then, I, then you'd have to manually blind it as well right well and this is what i said in my piece when we started out we were manually blinding it that's what the prior team had done and then we screwed up a couple times <laughs> We sent the wrong version to the to the reviewers, and right. one of my editors said, "Why don't we just blind it? Why don't we not not put a salutation on the decision letter period?" And I was like, "Oh, yes, we could do that." Right. <laughs> and then the salutation will be in the email, but that's not a problem. Right. Uh, and then, as I mentioned, somebody got upset with us for that, thinking it was rude, and I, I just like and it's funny it was somebody who had edited another journal, uh, and I think the reason that. But they'd been on editorial manager where this wasn't an issue. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so I had back end comes in again. Right. So I had an email exchange with them where I said, "This is why we're doing it," and um, and and actually on editorial manager, you don't have to do that. <laughs> so so yeah, I mean, I think that, and I have some sympathy for people who haven't figured out how to do this, or people who inherit a system where the 
they they never even know that they're prompt that they're prompted. They can be prompted to send a thank you letter because that box is unchecked, mm-hmm. <laughs> so they don't even see how they would do this other than you know drafting their own email or something. So you know I have some that's why I'll give people a chance. But yeah, I just sure. think it's bad practice. I don't understand why anybody does it. Um, I think the the major argument is, would be I guess that. Um, you're not doing anything wrong, so why bother to change? Mm-hmm. You know, you're not trying to put one over on the referees. But to me, that's fine. You're not good. Send them everything. And the problem, right, is that right now, because people are uncomfortable doing this, what happens is they do it on anonymous message boards. But anonymous message boards, yep. 80% yep. of the, the information you get there is crap, right? Yep, yep, um, yep. And, um, it was frustrating for me when I used to engage my, my view was I would just like give as much data as possible. Like just show them or I'd look things up. I actually learned something from an anonymous message board. I learned, I actually, somebody was pushing the idea of, of at least triple blinding the, the, um, at least blinding the desk rejection process. And frankly, they convinced me. Right. So <laughs> it wasn't a complete disaster. Um, you know, but, um, but I you, know, you used to read this stuff. You read stuff about internal deliberations at ISA. You, you read stuff about journal ed and card. And you just know it's wrong, right? You know right. it's false. Right. Uh, but you can't say it's false uh, in a way that would be definitive because then you'd be revealing inside information. I want to wrap up. Given your experience as an editor, what couple points of advice would you give to people about publishing in the current age, especially for junior scholars or, or upcoming uh, people who are working on their PhDs? I mean, it could be advice relevant to senior scholars as well. So I think the first thing I would say is that the old advice to have a very thick skin or to develop coping mechanisms for rejection applies more than ever. Um, Given these acceptance rates, you're going to spend a lot more time getting rejected even than before when you still spend a lot of your time getting rejected from things. Uh, and frankly, it doesn't matter what your coping mechanism is, whether your coping mechanism is being a stoic or whether it's yelling at an imaginary version of the reviewer, complaining to your friends, as, as long as it's not a psychic burden to them. I don't care what that is, but develop something as soon as possible that allows you to deal with rejection, to not internalize that but to also, uh, you know, at the end of the day, when you're done venting, have perspective about why, um, uh, you know, unfair decisions, ha- even in, even if, even allowing for the fact that you're not necessarily the judge of the best judge of your own case, you will get screwed sometimes. And um, you're just going to have to get used to that. And, and, and that's going to be more and more reality simply because of these factors I talked about. This is advice number one. Um, I know people who I've I know I have I have a, a close friend who is way smarter, way more analytic, would make a much better scholar than I than I am, right? Uh, but they recognized fairly early on, watching me, that um, that the level of kind of rejection that ha- that we live with is not something that they thought would be psychically healthy for them, and so they went in a different direction. It was our at losses in academia, but I think it was a very kind of self aware type of thing. So that's 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 the first advice, right? This is arbitrary and capricious, and if you don't if you don't develop the coping mechanisms for that, it's going to be you're going to be in a world of hurt, right? Um, the second thing is um, uh, there is no magic key to publishing, right? So you can um, there are lots of things that are under your control, but there are things that aren't under your control, and you can't 
try to you can't go in with the idea that you that you can and this is i guess related to number one that you can just make it happen through sheer force of will or skill so there are some standard things i would say about writing you know about writing you know articles for certain journals about thinking about how you frame them uh about thinking about how you advance the argument if you if you if you look a little bit you can see that some journals have house styles that sort of thing although keep in mind that many of those journals you don't have to ape the very specific kinds of phrasings you see because those are not what the authors are doing. Those are what the, the in-house copy editors are doing. <laughs> so, you know, articles don't go into IS looking like articles that come out of IS because they have a very robust copy editing process. Same thing with IO. They have a very good uh, editor that they that they hire who, who goes through the articles, right? It's a little bit more like publishing in foreign policy or something in that respect, in that sense, and that, that there is somebody who actually is paying a lot of attention to what your prose look like and is standardizing that prose to some degree. But nonetheless, if you do look broadly at what articles that look kind of like what yours look like in a journal over time, and you see a lot of consistency, you should think about the things that they're doing that, um, that, you know, the things that they're doing are probably things that they're doing right. Um, I get a little bit frustrated with some of the over-templating of articles these days, right? Um, but generally thinking it is true that every article has to have a hook, right? That hook can be a, a vignette. It can be a, a theoretical, a clearly articulated puzzle. It can be some theoretical contradiction, but it's got to have something that, that makes somebody say, hey, I want to read this. Uh, it really ought to have the argument articulated very early on because peer reviewer people read a lot of stuff and peer reviewers read a lot of stuff and making them work doesn't help your case, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and um, you know you really want to concentrate on being clean and clear. I also talk about uh, minimizing the number of potential targets on your back. This is one of the frustrating things, right? Um, uh, the more you tack on material that might be to you intellectually important but is potentially controversial, the more places you give a referee to decide that they don't want to take your piece. So you really have to kind of, you know, focus on you know, what you need for your argument and what you need to demonstrate your argument rather than um, trying to get on into side things, particularly because referees might draw you in that direction anyway. Sure. Uh, the third thing is that you have to really walk a very fine line now because um, the problem, let's say you get a rejection with a lot of helpful feedback, right? The problem we all know from that is that um, you, if you, revise too much for those reviewers, it could be a waste of your time, right? You could get completely different reviewers who care about completely different things or don't even like that direction, right? Um, on the flip side, if you don't revise at all, um, because the norm against re-review is dead, right? Editors are desperate for reviewers, they're desperate, desperate for highly qualified reviewers. I will take somebody who's reviewed a manuscript before, right? As long as they tell me, I don't have a problem with that. And as long as right. they commit to rereading the piece. And I actually kind of want to know if somebody hasn't taken this process seriously. Um, uh, that is, if they haven't changed anything. Um, then, um, you know, so if you don't do anything, you can get caught in, you can be in a situation where you get the same reviewer and they're like, what the hell? <laughs> I gave all this feedback, they ignored it, what's wrong with you, right? right? Even if you think that reviewer is wrong. And the flip side, if you do do that re revisions, that reviewer can be very happy with what you've done and it can give you a boost. So, so, but I do think that whatever you do, I, I really caution against flipping a manuscript. There's, there are a lot of rational reasons 
to play the lottery and simply get some rejections, just immediately send it to a new journal. Um, but I think that the there's an that 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 is that is dangerous in the sense that the the likelihood of a re-reviewer is much higher than you think. Mm -hmm. uh, it's also dangerous because um, at least the editors I've talked to really don't like it. We feel like, look, the peer review process is broken, but you know it does have some value. Feedback does have some value, and you just if you just treat it like a lottery, um, you're really defeating the purpose of this whole thing. Sure. Um, uh, this is a weird mix of, of broad and specific advice. Uh, I would say that don't be afraid to email editors. There's an enormous the, 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 there's an enormous asymmetry between people who either think they have a relationship with the editor, so they feel so you have people who think they have a relationship with an editor. Maybe they've reviewed for them much before. Maybe they know them, and they're much more likely to email them with questions. And then you have people who are just like have no filter or are think highly of themselves and they have no problem emailing editors, right? <laughs> and then you have um, people who are afraid of doing that, right? Um, and they're worried about pissing off an editor and things yeah, like yeah. that. And I won't say that it's impossible to piss off an editor. Um, you know, I've gotten annoyed once or twice, although I frankly was, but I don't even know if I'm a modal case, right? Where I sense I recognize that uh, there was this asymmetry of information out there. But by and large, you know, if your if your paper's taking a long time, right, and you have some sense that it's long for the journal, you know, email the editor, right? Just do it nicely, <laughs> right? Just say, hey, you know, I've been wondering. It's been a couple of months. Um, you know, uh, I I know that the I looked at the turnaround data. You know, I know it's kind of fast in that. I'm just wondering if there's some issue that's going on. You know, or if, you know, or if you had you now just you know if you have an ETA on the piece, right? Um, if you have a question about, about submissions, yeah, you might piss off the editor because it's actually in their guidance, but you know, ed you email them, they'll probably, you know, the worst they'll do is send you a link, right? <laughs> right. You know, it's not the end of the world. Um, so, so, do, you know, the more you, so the editors are people, um, as I, as I suggested, they're often under a lot of pressure. They're often engaged a lot of triage. Um, you should feel comfortable trying to communicate with them. Um, uh, the one thing, the only thing that I ever found out of bounds as an editor was somebody wanted me to like, look over their plan of, for a revise and resubmit. Right. Mm. And I just, I just didn't feel comfortable. I mean, not, I mean, in theory, like what's wrong with that. Right. I mean, we're editors, you know, we matter, <laughs> uh, we've given you our opinion, but in practice that just creates too much, A, it creates a problem, which is that we can't always anticipate what the reviewers are gonna do. Um, and B, um, uh, it, um, uh, it, you know, it creates unfairness, right? Because not everybody's comfortable doing that. So, sure, also um, adds to your workload and right, right. deal with problems of implicit promises. Yeah, exactly, you just don't wanna deal with that, right? Um, decision, most journals actually will allow appeals on decision. And if you think you've really been wrong, not just if you think, if you've thought about it for a while and you've gone to some friends <laughs> or some mentors and they agree, you know, and you really think that in, and it's a situation where it's not just like going to get you another reviewer, like the, the, the change in the outcome could get you published in that journal. Um, don't be afraid to appeal. Right. I mean, it is a pain. And so if you abuse it, it can be a real problem for editors, but, um, but, an editor worth their salt knows they make mistakes. And if a good case can be made to them, they make a mistake, 
it's, I mean, personally, I like correcting mistakes I've made. <laughs> right? sure. I don't want to make mistakes. So uh, just by and large, right, you know, even though the power asymmetries are great in reviewing and there is a way in which the editor is kind of sitting on Olympus making decisions in arbitrary and capricious ways, you know, there are ways, you shouldn't let that, you shouldn't take that feature of it to mean that you can't communicate or you can't email or you can't um, approach editors or that you can't, um, you can't raise issues. I mean, I've always often said the best way to appeal a decision is not, is to, is to not to appeal it, but point out problems and just say you wanted them to know, or this reviewer you think messed up and you just wanted them to know, because <laughs> then if the editor agrees, then they'll, they'll put it through, through, um, they'll usually will put it into a, um, and if they think it made a difference, they will put it into an appeal process, but, um, but it doesn't put pressure on them to do that. Anyway, I'm sort of giving random advice, but the point is that, that we ought to be moving to a situation where information about the process, information about editorial judgments is more democratized. And but that also requires uh, authors to be a little bit more, less afraid of, of reaching out. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I know this sounds easy because I'm, you know, I've been, you know, I, I've, i published a lot, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, up for full this year. I, you know, I hope I get it right. You know, I'm sort of at the stage of my career where I can, I have a lot more luxury about whether or not I submit things, Sure. but, but you know, editors who get pissed off by things they shouldn't get pissed off by, you know, that's their problem. That's not your problem. Right. As a, as an author and, you know, fine. Right. So don't submit to that journal as long as they're still an editor, whatever. Right. There are plenty of other journals in the sea. Um, so in a sense, don't, you know, you know, these people are ultimately your peers and you should mm -hmm. recognize that both in the mm -hmm. way you treat them, but also in how you understand what they're doing. Um, I mean, there's lots of other kinds of advice. Right. I mean, I think, um, you know, there's the obvious fact that the R&R &R is the foot in the door and it changes the process a lot. So um, when you get an R&R, &R, you really can pushback, you can convince, you know, you can uh, convince the editor that a reviewer is wrong. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so that means that, but, but, but more generally, that's a specific instance of the fact that I think one of the ways in which journal publishing has changed in ways that not everybody's caught up on is that back into the day, maybe you wouldn't even have a memo, right? At an R&R, or maybe your memo would be a paragraph. Sure. And now the expectation is that you have longer, more detailed memos. Um, mm -hmm. Memos that actually point specifically, this reviewer says this, here is where we made the change. Here is what we agree. Here is where we made the change, right? Reviewer said this, we thought this was a really good idea. We took it under advice. We realized it would have this implication. We didn't pursue that, right? Um, really kind of line by line answers with overviews that that just, that discuss the, the major things you did. That's, that's expected by a lot of people now and it really makes your life easier, right? Also keep in mind that there are, you can send memos to the editor, but you can, to the, to the editor and the, and the reviewers, but you can also send confidential letters. You can also, say, look, this memo is just for the editor. And then you can say, look, I think there's a real problem with something that R2 is saying. They're asking me to run this model. This model is not appropriate. Here's why, right? So, mm -hmm. and I don't want to say this as bluntly in my comments to them, but I really thought you should know, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so people at the r, r stage, if you're lucky enough to be in the 15 to 20%, you know, the, well, the eight to 20% of, of pieces that get r and R'd at some of these journals, um, they do give you a voice in the process in a way that you don't beforehand 
have beforehand, that you only have through your, essentially through your, um, through what your, your piece communicates. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a sort of technical advice. I mean, um, I mean, are there any specifics you have in mind beyond that? Any? I mean, no, no, I just, uh, I, I, I don't, so I think part of you spoke to this a little bit, right? The people, I, I particularly, I think junior scholars, but even, uh, I, 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 even I can imagine some senior, more senior folks don't get a chance to engage with editors. Uh, either they don't know them personally, they are concerned about emailing them, wanting to appear to be troublemakers or getting reputations or what have you. So I really view this as an opportunity to for folks to vicariously hear from an editor, not directly in their ear. We're not obviously taking questions live from a studio audience or something like that, but that they can, you know, just some advice in an era when journal publishing seems is very difficult and increasingly so. Uh, we've talked about the stochasticity of it, the um, difficulty of triangulating uh, reviews into meaningful revisions that you can then push forward at another journal and have a better chance of success, right? Sometimes that just seems like it's impossible. Journal at, or reviewers will point you in the exact opposite direction of the reviews you made in response to the last reviewers. Mm -hmm. So I think you touched on a lot of this stuff. And so I, I think that was fantastic advice. Um, can I add a few more things, actually? Of course. Um, so one of the things I'll add is just on this issue of communicating with editors. Um, I think it's part of our job, so you shouldn't feel reticent to do it. But it, it, the, really the crucial thing is to keep your correspondence nice and polite, even when you think the editor's being an idiot, <laughs> right? Um, that, that that goes a long way, right? Um, uh, if you've ever gotten an email from like some random angry person, which a lot of us that have some amount of you know, small public profile get, uh, you know that you, have a, you actually have a fight or flight response to that, and you don't want to trigger that in the editor. So just, just be nice and you can get a, go a long way by being nice and polite mm -hmm. and self, sometimes self-deprecatory. Um, you know, I don't, I have a theory, for example, that you should, you should be willing to be a little self-deprecatory and a little funny in your, in your, um, in your uh, memos, for example, but I don't know whether, you know, that's actually right. The second thing is um, that um, you also will get a sense of, of some things about the editorial process just by Let's say you submit to something and you get a rejection or an R and R back. Uh, that's because there's variation among the way that editors approach this role, and, and so anything I say may not travel. You can get a pretty good sense of things uh, through you know sort of one or two interfaces with a journal, right? So if you are getting back rejections or R and Rs that are just a form letter with the reviewers attached, reviews attached. Uh, that tells you something about the editorial attitude, right? Um, that they are not really interested in um, deep engagement with the piece, that they primarily view themselves as just kind of, um, you know, kind of calling the balls and strikes of the reviewers. Right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, that is going to affect how you do things, right? Well, first of all, I think that if you get an R&R &R with contradictory reviews and no guidance, you should email the editors <laughs> and say, uh, hey, you know, I, I just, as you know, as I'm sure you know, or maybe even flag, which is saying about, you know, this person wants me to 
take the first half of the, the piece and write something about that. And the other person wants me to take the second half, you know, do you have any thoughts? <laughs> right. Right. I mean, to me, that's, this is a failure of editorial judgment. I've talked about that in those blog posts, uh, but you can pretty much figure out that like for them, you're going to need to convince the reviewers. They're the most important people. But if you get uh, editorial letters, like what you got, you, you'd usually get back from ISQ when we weren't playing to super triage where there were specific issues highlighted and specific issues not talked about um, or, you know, emissions by the specific emissions or even things saying where the editor said, you know, we don't care that much about that. Um, that means you need that, that, that your job is to convince the editor. Uh, and to the extent that convincing the reviewers helps with that, of course it does. Uh, but, um, but your ultimate, it's ultimately the editor is your op, your, is your audience of those types of journals. And so that should, and you should think about your revision trajectory accordingly. For example, and so that's just an example of how you can kind of get information even without knowing somebody on the inside or without talking to a lot of people, uh, or or some of whom may not even know what they're talking about. You can get information by just seeing, as a reviewer and as an author, how the editors handle the decisions that you see. Will tell you some pretty important information about about what the what the key things you need to do at that journal are to sure. get a piece accepted. So that's really great. Yeah, I think. We'll leave it there. We're we're pretty long in the tooth on this on this one, so we don't want to um, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, especially since we have another podcast talking about exit from hegemony, uh, uh, on the radar at least, if not formally scheduled. So I want to thank you very much for taking so much time to talk about this, and uh, uh, from a personal standpoint, I want to thank you for for being such an excellent editor, Ice Q. As I said, I didn't submit anything, but you really did an amazing job of showing what a conscientious, self-aware scholar can do in the editorial role and, and set that up as a role model, I think, for a lot of folks. So okay. thank you very much, Dan. Well, thank you. It's really nice to hear that. I will say, I want to stress, whatever good we did at ISQ on the editorial side was a function of having a very large, very dedicated team of people, many of whom, you know, I got a course release <laughs> You know, I got, you know, a, a little bit of such riches, <laughs> right. Um, uh, but many of whom got nothing. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and, and they did a lot and, and did a lot really basically just for the sake of doing it. And, and they deserve much more credit because we would never have been able to, to, to even whatever level of success we had, we would not have been able to do without that group of people. Um, so. Absolutely. That's it for this, the second episode in the renewed Duck of Minerva podcast. Many thanks to Dan for taking the time to speak with me about publishing and international relations today. A fraught exercise, as I'm sure most of you will agree. Our music is by the incomparable Steve Dance. Until next time. Duck of Minerva.